All right. Today we are, I'm pretty sure, um, going to finish the Way of Jesus series that we've been doing, which as we got into it, I, uh, when Tab and I first talked about it, we had, you know, some basic like, oh, you know, eight or nine weeks. And then as we got into it, we're just like, you could talk about this for six months. <laughs> and being a completionist, it's hard for me to let go of that. But I feel like we've covered some really good things. And as we get into more things in the lead up to the holidays, I think it'll go hand in hand with what we've talked about as far as the way of Jesus. So today will be probably our last one on that. And you can see on the screen there, we're going to be talking about humility um, this morning. And what I'm starting from here is Matthew eleven twenty nine. Take up my yoke and learn from me because I am lowly and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls. And you may say, Brie, seriously, that's kind of lazy. Tab used that scripture last week. And I would say, you are right. But at the same time, all of these things that we have talked about as far as Jesus, this is where he outright says, this is what I am. I am humble. He's making this statement, this I am statement. I am humble. So I felt like it's important to start here. Really simple. Jesus says, I am humble. The Greek word here for humble is tapenos, right here at the top. I think that's how you say it. I don't. I can't seem to get the right emphasis on the right syllable, but that's basically how you say it. It just means humble, lowly, or downcast. There's eight occurrences in the New Testament in this specific form. There's several others in various other forms of the word. Let's just look here at a few examples of the use of this word tapenos. Luke chapter 1, 51 through 52. And this is where uh, Mary is singing the song of praise. And she's pregnant with Jesus. She's gone to visit Elizabeth. And she's singing this song. She says, he has done a mighty deed with his arm. He has scattered the proud because of the thoughts of their hearts. And he has toppled the mighty from their thrones and exalted the lowly. Romans twelve sixteen, Paul has given instruction um, to believers on how to exist together as brothers and sisters. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud. Instead, associate with the humble. Do not be wise in your own estimation. In James 4, 6, more instruction for believers. But he gives, great, uh, he gives greater grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And again, in verse 10, humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. As you listen to all of those, and you look at all those verses, take a second. Do you see a familiar pattern or a theme that develops from these four verses? Something we're all really familiar with. The pattern is that the way up is down. That's the theme. And it's played out over and over and over again throughout the whole biblical story. The way up is down. It's the upside down nature of God's kingdom. The way to exaltation is to humble yourself. In the Greek culture of the day, when these things were being written, strength and being self-sufficient, being self-reliant was really important. That was something that was seen as a very high value quality. No one wanted to be seen as weak 
or lower than someone else. So being humble, when you look at the literature um, in this Greek culture, was always in a negative connotation. This word tapenos, when it's used in contemporary literature, it has a negative connotation. No one wanted to be seen as a servant. That wasn't something you sought to do. Jesus comes, and he redefines humility as a virtue. He does this. He condemns the exaltation of self when he speaks against the Pharisees in Matthew 23. He tells the crowds there that the greatest among them won't be the one in the place of honor at the banquets. It'll be the servant. It'll be the one who is among you serving. That is the place of true honor. So he teaches on this in all kinds of places, many, many places. We'll just look today at Mark chapter 9. They came to Capernaum. When he was in the house, he asked them, What were you arguing about on the way? He's talking to the disciples here. But they were silent because on the way, they had been arguing with one another about who was the greatest. So like, ooh, we don't want to tell them that. (laughs) Sitting down, he called the twelve and said to them, If anyone wants to be first, he must be last and servant of all. He took a child, had him stand among them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, whoever welcomes one little child such as this in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but him who sent me, the Father himself. So this question of who was the greatest Um, among the disciples, is told in three out of the four Gospels. And this isn't the only instance where this comes up. It's a repeated theme. The disciples were very much subject in their minds to the culture of the day. And it's, it's kind of interesting because it seems on like some level, the disciples were willing to abandon their um, seeking out of rank among the culture they were in because they were following Jesus. Even when he was rejected and despised and people didn't want to hear him, they still continued to follow him. So it seems like they had abandoned that on some level, but on some level they had not. Um, it was like they were saying, I know I can't be a big fish in that pond. Like that's bad. But what about this new thing you're doing? I want to be a big fish in that pond. So they had just taken this paradigm that The whole world applies and kept it, and they just shifted it to the kingdom. And as I read that and thought about that, I thought, wow, that is something really good for the church to think on. Have I taken the paradigm of the world? I'm not participating with them anymore, but have I just moved that same paradigm into the church and just seeking rank and status and honor in that realm instead of the realm of the world? Something good for us to think on. So this question of who is the greatest, is really getting stirred up as we read this story. Because at this time, what's happening is that they're on their way to Jerusalem with Jesus. And we've talked before about the expectation of the Jewish Messiah. And that he would come and he would overthrow the Roman oppressors and he would reestablish Israel as a nation. So things are getting really exciting They're on their way to Jerusalem with Jesus. He's going to be king. He's going to establish his throne. And his kingdom is going to come. And they're in the inner circle. 
I mean, they've been following Jesus for a while now, and they're just like, what am I going to get? Like, where am I going to come out after all of this is said and done? This is going to be good for me. Jesus quickly corrects this in this story. He corrects it by telling them that they must humble themselves to the level of a servant, and that is where honor is found. He uses the example of this child. He, he makes this example of warmly receiving this child to himself. In this moment, this child in this context would have been one of the least among them, if not the very least. There's no reason in yourself to associate with a child in this context, to ally yourself with them, to receive them warmly, isn't going to do anything for your social rank or status. It's not a good strategic move. It doesn't make you look good. In fact, it might make you look worse. But if you want to be great in God's kingdom, you lower yourself to honor and welcome the least among you. You concern yourself more so with the needs of others than with yourself. And he says that if you welcome the least among you, you welcome Yahweh himself. He says, it's not even just me that you welcome. You welcome the creator God himself when you embrace the most humble among you. To me, that seems like excellent instruction for churches that want more of the presence of God. How are we doing on welcoming the least among us and being welcoming to whoever and receiving them in the love of Jesus? That is good stuff if we want to see more of God. So Jesus didn't just teach this. He provided an example in the way that he lived his life. And Paul talks a lot about this in Philippians chapter 2. He starts out here just by giving some instruction to believers. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit. But in humility, consider others as more important than yourselves. That's so practical. Everyone should look not to his own interests, but rather to the interests of others. So basic, so straightforward, so confrontational. That's how we are to relate to each other, is to do these things. And he goes on to talk about how Jesus exemplified this in verses 5 through 9. Adopt the same attitude as of that as that of Christ Jesus who existing in the form of God did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited or grasped at or held on to instead he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant taking on the likeness of humanity and when he had come as a man he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even to death on a cross. For this reason, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name. So he existed in the form of God, but he didn't consider equality with God as something to be clung to. I think there's a really important principle in these verses for us, and that's that Jesus knew exactly who he was. It's not as if he came to earth and became a human being and forgot that he was God. That's not what happened. He told people that he was God. He made it plain, but he also 
lowered himself at the same time to the level of a servant. He washed the disciples' feet. He was baptized by John. They were all like, what? No, this is backwards. And he's like, no, this is what you need to do too. This is what I do. The important point inside of this is that humbling yourself and humility is deeply connected with identity. It's very, very important. Jesus didn't have to improve. He didn't have to prove who he was. He didn't have to prove himself. He knew where he came from and where he was going. And he had peace and rest in his identity in the Father. So usually at the end of these, I'll talk about what the thing is not. Like what compassion is not. What patience is not. I feel like it fits here a little bit to start talking about this. Humility is not thinking that you're a worthless nobody. That's not what humility is. It's not thinking that. It's knowing who you are in Christ and choosing to humble yourself. Choosing to lower yourself in the interest of serving other people. When you're firmly rooted in your identity in Christ, there is no need to compete for position or authority. There's no need to exalt yourself when you're secure in your identity in Christ. When you know who you are in that. No need to strategize so you can prove how important you are. God has already made this declaration about your value through the cross. Remember your identity as a believer in Christ from Ephesians. At one time, you were dead. You walked according to the ways of this world. You were hopeless. You were without God in the world. You were an orphan. Think of an orphan. They have to survive, and they will do anything to survive. That's what you used to be, but it is not so for you now that you are a believer, that you've come to Christ in faith. Now, God has made you alive with Christ. Not only that, but he has raised you up and seated you with Christ in the heavenly realms. If you are in Christ, you have become the object of the immeasurable riches of God's grace. That is you. You are that object. You have an imperishable inheritance stored up for you. Glory unspeakable is your destiny as a believer in Christ. And none of that comes from you. None of that came to you based on your performance. You can't merit it. You can't earn it. It is just a gift that has been given to you. So what in the world, when we really think about that and root ourselves in that, is left for us to compete for? For what reason do we need to exalt ourselves when we have been given that? There's just nothing anymore. What what we have to do is from that place of incredible identity, we give freely because so much has been freely given to us. That is the response, is to give freely in the service of others. Like I said, this first one that we went through is not the only account of the disciples talking about who is the greatest among us. So let's look at another one. In this account, a mother comes to Jesus and asks if her sons can sit at his right hand and at his left hand in the places of honor in his new kingdom. So after some back and forth with her, this is what Jesus says. 
Jesus called them aside and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their superiors exercise authority over them. It shall not be this way among you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first among you must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. So there it is again. Usually whenever people get the chance out in the world, and sometimes in the church, to have a position of authority or power, they love to just wield it over people. The Pharisees did that all the time. They took the best seats. They loved the places of honor. They loved to be called rabbi, all of those different things. That's so common. But Jesus says, that is not the way it should be among you. Whoever wants to be great, you must be a servant like I came to serve and not be served, even to the point of dying as a ransom for many. Which kind of just takes us back to Philippians 8. Jesus humbled himself to the point of dying unjustly for people that largely did not receive him. He took such a humble position. There hasn't been a lower position taken than the one Jesus was obedient in taking. He took the rock bottom. No matter what service you perform, whatever you do, you're not out humbling Jesus. You're just not. So he took the lowest position in his obedience to death. And what's the result? It says right here, it says, God highly exalted him. And the word in Greek right here for highly exalted is only used here. It's just this one time. So you can see this demonstration of the absolute lowest of the low to the highest of the high. This word in Strong's is defined as being exalted beyond measure. That's what Jesus was. He took the lowest place of a servant, so humble, and now he's highly exalted. So with the way of Jesus as our example, there's nowhere too low for you to go. There's nowhere too low for any of us to go, because you're not going lower than he did. He's our example. All right, so here toward the end, I'm going to do a little, some application. Talk about, okay, how do we respond to this? Um, what do we do in light of Jesus' humility? And I feel like this would have been a little more obvious or easier to talk about in ancient Greek culture because self-exaltation and reliance and all of that was so prevalent, it was just super obvious. It's like, well, how do you be humble? Well, don't do that. Just be the opposite of arrogant. Today, things are a little more complicated, all right? Because culture at large has recognized that it looks good to be humble. Like, it's valued. We recognize it in our larger culture as a virtue, to be humble. Nobody wants to just look like they're full of themselves because then you just look like a jerk and everybody knows it. But also, it's still not very fun to actually be humble. Like, that's just not fun for my flesh. So I don't really want to do it. So what happens is this thing, the art of false humility, is so prevalent in our culture today. And the hallmark of false humility is the humble brag. 
So I want to use this as an example to just show you what humility is not. Now, I didn't really, I'm not really familiar with this person. I guess this is Floyd Mayweather. He's a boxer. He's super famous. Anyway, I guess he's like the king of the humble brag is what I was reading. This is a fantastic example. Here he is pictured with his son. And he captions this picture of his son holding a high school diploma with this. I'm so proud of my son for doing something that I didn't do. And that's graduate high school. When I was his age, I dropped out of school and followed my dream of boxing to take my family out of poverty. (laughs) You see, that's like not true humility. That's a humble brag. He's taking, this is the definition of it. It's taking, uh, you, you appear to be sharing a struggle or some kind of shortcoming, but you creatively insert something of which you are really, really proud Like the fact that you became a boxer and pulled your family out of poverty. (laughs) So that is really not true humility. It happens on the internet a lot. It's pretty easy to spot. Not real humility. All right, moving on. Like I mentioned before, humility isn't just seeing yourself as worthless. It's having no self-esteem and talking bad about yourself. That is also not humility. That can be a manifestation of false humility as well. And in the church, I feel like this takes on its own particular flavor sometimes. And it might sound like, I am just a wretched sinner. Right? It's like, okay, well, yeah, we all still make mistakes. I get that. Like, we needed Jesus to die for us, and we need to accept him if we're going to be righteous before God. Because we make mistakes. I get that. But just like Paul says... I haven't attained perfection, but I press on toward the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. My mind is being transformed. I'm being conformed to the likeness of my Savior. Why do I need to glory so much in my failings? I mean, like, I can admit that I make mistakes, but I don't want my identity to be like, I'm just a wretched sinner, and I I don't want to focus on that. I want to focus on what Jesus has done now. He's made me a new creation, and he's sanctifying me now. There's this great C.S. Lewis quote from Mere Christianity about humility that I really like. This is what he says. Do not imagine that if you meet a really humble man, he will be what most people call humble nowadays. He will not be a sort of greasy, smarmy person who is always telling you that, of course, he is nobody. Probably all you will think about him is that he seemed a cheerful, intelligent chap who took a real interest in what you said to him. If you do dislike him, it will be because you feel a little envious of anyone who seems to enjoy life so easily. He will not be thinking about humility. He will not be thinking about himself at all. (laughs) I think that's really good. And as I read that, what I pull out of that is that true humility has less to do with what we say And it has more to do with our deeds. It's really portrayed less in what you say about yourself or this or that, and really how you treat other people. Humility takes place in the context of our relationships, right? So the opposite of humility, what is that? Pride. That's fairly obvious. Pride, arrogance, self-exaltation. That's the opposite of humility, That's what we need to avoid. 
And I happen to have a little story about that that I'll share with you. And um, I'll preface it by saying, by no means do I have this all figured out or do I claim to be like the most humble person on earth. (laughs) Actually, that's exactly what I'm not saying. But the Lord really did teach me a deep lesson about this that changed my life and changed the trajectory of my course as a Christian. So I'd like to share that with you. Um, at some point, after I got saved, I take a drink of water. At some point after I got saved <clears throat> and started hearing preaching and teaching, about Jesus and about the way we should be as Christians, I became aware that I had a problem with pride. And uh, I thought, wow, that's real bad, right? Because, like, that's Satan's thing. Like, who wants to be, you know, like, also having a Satan's thing? That's, that's the worst. So already, you're already kind of feeling ashamed, like, a little bit. Like, you kind of got to hide that. And... No matter what I tried to do, you know, because the Bible says, humble yourself. So I'm like, okay, well, I just need to humble myself. And no matter what I would try to do, I just kept having this problem, kept recognizing this thing in myself that was like super ugly and not good. And so because of the way I thought about God back then, I thought God was punitive. And the only way that he corrected things was through punishment. That's just the way I saw him. So I thought, at some point, he is going to thump me big time. Like, he is going to thump me, and it is going to be ugly, it is going to hurt, but it's going to fix my problem. And I just was kind of like waiting for that thump, you know? And um, even in that, even in that, recognizing that I had a problem with pride was some pride. It's so weird, It was like a layered thing. There was a lot going on there. Because I think the implication when you're a proud person or you have a problem with that is that you have something to be prideful to be about. You know, you have something prideful, something to be proud of. So you can be proud of the fact that you're proud and that that's your specific sin. Just like maybe if you're a perfectionist, you do a lot of things well. You know, it's just, it was super ugly and it was all folded in on itself and really complex. I just didn't really know what to do. Well, and I started coming to CCF, and I heard some teaching and some things that I had never heard before. And one night, um, we were at a special meeting, and we had this couple come in that runs a, a ministry called Restoring the Foundations. And it's a lot about inner healing and about dealing with your roadblocks, the obstacles that keep you from moving forward. And this, the guy that was talking said something in passing. It wasn't even the main point of his thing. But he said, pride is just a mask for shame. And I'm not kidding you. Before my logical mind could catch up with what he said, I was offended. Just, it was a, like a click reaction. Like this wall went up in me. And in my mind, I thought, I had this thought, how dare you assume that I am ashamed of myself? And I was just like, what What was that? That was crazy. Where did that even come from? It was one of those moments where I was just like, whoa, that was really, something is seriously wrong here. And I 
went home and kind of carried that thought with me and realized like something was happening. That was a manifestation of something that was buried in there. And the Holy Spirit began to unravel for me that I had this huge problem with fear and shame and inferiority and insecurity. And he began to unravel that just ever so slowly. It totally was not the thumping I thought that I was going to get. It's like when I expected God to come just in with a wrecking ball and just destroy me to make me humble. He just comes in with a scalpel and begins to just remove things. And he started to show me that as as a young person, I had identified these things that I thought brought me value. If I want to be loved and accepted and valued by people and not rejected, then I have to be good at these things. I have to be this kind of person. And I tried to do those things, and what I found out is that I was never the best at any of them. Like, I just, there was always somebody better than me at these things. And not only that, like a lot of them, guys, I wasn't even good at. Like, I just wasn't even good at it. And so, like, what did that say about me? So I had to begin to inflate certain parts of myself. And I had to begin to strive and perform and maybe some other things that I could be good at so that I could earn value. And I had to begin to build these facades around myself in a certain way, fabricate who I was so that I could survive and just get along and feel halfway decent about who I was. And then when I got saved and became a Christian, those things kind of changed. It was like, well, it used to be you need to be good at this, but now that I'm in the church and I see what everybody else is doing, now I have to be good at that. And I have to strive, and I have to have all this pride because, well, I'm just so good at it. And, uh, oh my gosh, it was like, do you know that you can't even give anything an honest try when you think like that? Because you're just so afraid to fail. You're so afraid that you'll never have enough that you just don't try. You sabotage yourself. You just continue to hide inside of that. So believe me when I say, like, that is an ongoing process for me. Like, that is something that I still am walking out of and learning my identity in Christ and listening to Brent preach about sonship and the Father's heart toward me was really... It was everything I needed and things I had never heard. So that became this ongoing process, and it still is. And I have to watch myself. I don't know if you've ever experienced when the Lord speaks to you and begins to heal something in you, and then, like, you still struggle sometimes. Like, sometimes it still tries to come back, those same old things. And you kind of have to be on your guard against that stuff. This is this for me. I have to watch myself. To not go back to prideful self-protection. To not go back to that place where I just feel strong and good and um, I'm hiding. I have to avoid that. Also, sometimes I just don't want to consider the needs of others above my own. You know, I think everybody can relate to that as a human being. Sometimes you're just like, (laughs) Brent just raised his hand, let the record show. (laughs) But sometimes you just don't want to consider other people. And sometimes... I just don't think I need the wisdom of someone else because I'm thinking more highly of myself than I ought. Sometimes that's just the truth and it doesn't have anything to do with protecting myself. I just don't want to do it. 
So recognizing that I need to deal with this, how can, how can I combat this? If you recognize some area in your life where you struggle, how can you combat this kind of thing? I want to share with you what has been fruitful for me. Um, when the Holy Spirit makes me aware that I'm struggling, I'll often pray and say, Lord, you know, I, I'm struggling here. This is something I run to. Help me to see when I'm running to it so I can stop and run to you instead. What do I do? When the Holy Spirit makes me aware that I'm struggling in this area or anywhere else, a really good thing to do is to turn to the Word. It's so important. The Word helps to renew our minds, and when we focus on the truth of the Word, we have our minds set on the things above and not the things below. Instead of being overwhelmed by our failures and really condemned, which is easy to do, um, the Word reminds us that there's grace for us. There's grace for us in our time of need, that we can go boldly before the Lord and that He'll receive us. It increases our faith and it reminds us of the truth. So this is what I do. In the last couple of years, I recognized that like beginning to lead here as a pastor was a really big deal <laughs> and that I was kind of woefully uh, ill-equipped to do it. And it, all my prayers just sounded like, God, help me. Like, just please. Oh, my goodness. And one of the things that really helped me move forward in that was focusing on humbling myself and making sure that I was kind of keeping that in line because I know that's a problem I have. So I started, this is my actual handwriting. I write in this little thing called a rocket book, and then I scan it with my phone using an app, and it uploads all of my notes to the cloud, and then I can get into them and look at them. And so this is an actual exercise I use for myself. I went through and I just prayed and then I asked the Lord in my regular Bible reading time to show me some verses that would begin to minister to me around this issue and that would renew my mind and change my perspective on myself, on other people. And keeping my mind focused on those things, I would remember more to treat other people with dignity and to lower myself in service of other people to consider their ideas Things like that. So these are some fairly obvious ones. And um, these are what spoke to me. You may look at some of these. And I made printouts of this stuff in the back um, so that as I work my way through it, if you'd like to take it as an example, they're back there. But there are some fairly obvious ones. This one at the bottom was something that just really spoke to me about even what I say in regards to other people or in things that are happening in quiet places like where they can't hear it, that's still really important that I'm acting with humility even when no one can hear me. Whatever I say, it's going to be revealed. So I would write these down and go over them and meditate on them. Meditate sounds like really fancy, but what that means for me is think about them while I walk my dog. <laughs> that's, that's how I meditate on things as I walk my dog. And I just think about, I just think about, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And a lot of times the Lord will reveal things to me, even in those moments. So I'll go over these. I'll write them. I'll read them a lot. And then I found that a lot of times the best time for me to take captive my thoughts was right when I woke up. And I'm not big on like doing um, written out prayers like a lot of time. But when I find that I have a pointed issue that I need to attack... I find it helpful to have something that I recite. It's like a tool 
of truth that I use to help renew my mind. So for a while there, as I would wake up in the morning, I would pray this prayer. And um, it's adapted from a little book by Derek Prince called Prayers and Proclamations. I just went and took his outline and plugged in a bunch of things that were really specific to me. And I would pray this every morning, and it really was an awesome blessing to me. And uh, so it says, No weapon that's formed against me shall prosper, and every tongue that arises against me in judgment I do condemn. This is my heritage as a servant of the Lord, and my righteousness is from you, Lord. And I had that in there because I don't have to protect myself. My righteousness is from him, and he's my protector. So I can lay that stuff down. I don't have to carry that. I forgive anyone who may have come against me, and having forgiven them, I bless them in the name of the Lord. I declare, O Lord, that you and you alone are my God, and beside you there is no other. A just God and a Savior, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, and I worship you. I submit myself afresh to you today in unreserved obedience. I come before you humbly and ask that you teach me your ways today. Your ways are life to me. As your chosen child, I choose to put on a compassionate heart, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Oh, that's another section of it. It's the same thing. I resist the devil, all his pressures, attacks, deceptions, and every instrument or agent he would seek to use against me. I do not submit. I resist him, drive him from me, and exclude him in the name of Jesus. Specifically, I reject condemnation, pride, offense, stress, fear, anxiety, and infirmity of all kinds. That's where you can throw in whatever particular thing you're struggling with. Just name it and put it right in there. I take every thought captive, making it obedient to Christ, destroying arguments and every opinion raised against the knowledge of God. And I thank you, Lord, that through the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross, I have passed out from under the curse and into the blessing of Abraham, whom you blessed in all things. Exaltation, health, reproductiveness, prosperity, victory, God's favor, and God's friendship. Praying that every morning right when I woke up, and it took me like a week to memorize it, was awesome. It was a huge blessing to me. I don't know that you'll receive it the same, but to me, in my mind, it was fantastic. And it just, it, it did a lot for me as far as helping me think in different ways. And then, um, humility is something that takes place, like I said, in the context of relationships. And so many times when Paul is writing or James is writing, they're talking about how to live together in relationship. And so, as this took hold for me, I wanted to pray over my church and over our pastoral team and kind of as a declaration, sowing those seeds with my mouth. What am I saying about my brothers and sisters? And um, also that continual helping to shift my focus to what really matters and how to treat people. So Zechariah 4, 6 is always something I go to when we're talking about small beginnings or when you don't understand how something is going to work when something seems too big for you. I always like to remind myself, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. And then I went to Colossians 3, which is a great section of scripture about the body relating to each other. And I changed it to first person for our pastoral team and for our church. And I would read this out loud every day. And I would also pray it over us um, a lot of times before we would have meeting times or whatever. 
As the elect of God, holy and beloved, we put on tender mercies, kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another and forgiving one another if anyone has a complaint against another. Even as Christ forgave us, so we also must do. But above all these things, we put on love, which is the bond of perfection. We let the peace of God rule in our hearts, to which also we were called in one body, and we are thankful. We let the word of Christ dwell in us richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in our hearts to the Lord. Whatever we do, in word or deed, we do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. And that also really blessed me to pray that over our church, to read that to myself, to meditate on that as I relate to other people and talk with other people and have relationship with other people. It really does change things. It's the word of God. It's powerful. You meditate on it, you apply it, it will change things. So whenever you need to humble yourself or whatever it is that you're facing, I do encourage you to look intently into the word and become not just a hearer, but become a doer. So if you'd like these examples, I printed them off and they're back on the table there. If you'd like to take one for yourself, weave your own things into that. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you have brought an end to striving and performance and earning and all of those things that we used to have to do when we were without you. I thank you that you've brought us into a family and peace and rest and inheritance, identity. I thank you, Lord, that you know us fully and you just love us. It's incredible. We thank you so much for that, Lord. And for every person in here, I pray that you would deepen that knowledge of your love for them and of who they are in you. I pray that out of that knowledge, Lord, that we would all humble ourselves in love and in service to you and to one another, Lord. Thank you for all that you're doing and all that you've done. In Jesus' name, amen.